Good morning, church. It is good to be here to worship the Lord with you. I'm, I'm saying that not just because that's an opening line, but because I'm genuinely excited to be with my family, to worship our Father. And I hope that you share that excitement and, and we don't get caught up in these routines of just doing the church people thing, but that we remember the God that we worship. And already this morning there's been technical difficulties that probably didn't get noticed by most people, but there's a few people in here that's like, there's anxiety about it. I'm one of those few. <laughs> God, just let it all work out. And it, it's so important that we just pause and remember what we're doing, that we have a living God, a faithful Father, a gracious King who has made us His own, has drawn us near, has given us everything we need, and has sent us out on this mission that we could bring this hope to a world that's without hope. But it's so imperative that we believe it first. And so we've, we've begun this, this new sermon series to work through a book of the Bible because we, we see it as so imperative that we study the Bible and know it well. It is the Word of God. It is our life. And Jared introduced the, the book of 1 Corinthians to us last week. Uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And I think he did well. I don't know if what my opinion matters, but I was encouraged. Uh, I'm very grateful for my brother who faithfully studies the Word of God and prays on how to uh, bring the most application as possible to this body of believers and, and the mission that we have here. And, and I wasn't with you guys last week worshiping, but I listened to the podcast. If you didn't know that exists, you can go listen to it. Don't use it as an excuse to skip so that you can just catch the sermon later. But, but certainly continue to be edified through the preaching of God's word, even through that. Um, but we looked into this book last week and we, we discovered a, a group of people who are caught up in sin in many different ways and, and needing some help and some guidance. Uh, totally unlike us. We've got it figured out. We don't really need any help. Uh, the city that's, that is all kinds of evil. I would say that Corinth, is, this, this letter to the Corinthians is important for many reasons, but I would say that this group of believers struggles more than any other church in the New Testament to get it, to really believe the gospel. There's so much corruption in this city, and it's affecting the church in some major ways. And so Paul has a lot to say. And in the preaching of this, um, it should be clear to us as the church that this letter is also applicable to us as a church, just like the Corinthians. We need the word of God. We need the gospel to unite us in Christ, to encourage us, to equip us to the mission. And as believers, we're possessed by the Holy Spirit. We're compelled and controlled by the love of Christ. This is language of Scripture. So if you're not a believer, that, might, that may sound weird to you, and it probably does, and probably should. But if you are a believer, it's comforting that the love of Christ has affected me in such a way that I live to express that love. Uh, much of the book of 1 Corinthians applies in that way. Now, it's always our intent as we prepare sermons to, to do so in a way that's just this unfolding, this unveiling, this exposition of what God's word is that we would just expose truth 
the proclaimed truth by exposing what Scripture already says to be true. This isn't any man's opinion. This is the Word of God. This is an objective truth. And as we expose it, we want to do so in a way that gives us good context and we can explain the meaning behind things and, and through study and through devotion and through prayer that we would see what's true, proclaim what's true, and that there would be this knowledge that we could pass on. That's, that's this idea of preaching. And then, of course... We hope that this body of believers doesn't just get educated by these efforts, but that this knowledge would sink down into our souls, that this understanding would become a belief. We'd hold on to these truths, that it would shape our lives, that in every way our lives would be saturated by this gospel truth. And in in seeing this, it should affect everything. All of life is affected by this truth. If you have parts of your life that's not, then it's likely you've compartmentalized this truth in a way that isn't going to liberate you to live in light of the truth in that, in that area of your life, but maybe it'll affect all of your life. And so if the Spirit of God is with us, then He certainly will stir up affections as we believe these truths for this King, for the one the truth is proclaimed about. And as our affections are stirred up for Him, we worship the Lord. And so we gather once a week to do that. But also we should do that in all of life. We should worship our king because of these truths being proclaimed weekly and hopefully every day in your life. Proclaim it to yourself. Proclaim it to one another. Spur one another on to the the proclamation of this truth so that all the world can know our king. That's the church. That's the purpose of the church. Not these occasional events or these programs It's not about entertainment. It's not just about community. It's about a community that's on mission to proclaim this truth. Now, you, individual, you personally have a role in this. You have been called by God. We heard that last week. We're sanctified ones. We're holy ones. We've been called by God. And you've been gifted by God. You've been filled with His Spirit. You, as an individual, add to this body of believers that gift. And then we go together to proclaim truth as the body of Christ, unified, each gifted in every way. All together, we have everything we need. And then every single individual, you're secure for eternity in Christ. That's the message of what we're going to preach this morning. That's the chunk, the introduction to this letter. Paul's reminding us, you are called, you are holy, you are gifted, you are secure because God is faithful, because of Jesus Christ. So we know that this letter is from Paul, who had a rough life early on and did some things he shouldn't have done and had his life totally changed by this good news and devoted all of himself to the proclamation of this good news. And then he planted churches in Corinth, it was this, one of the cities he planted a church and and specifically, he's writing to, it says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, which is a unique elaboration on what he normally says to the church. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, the Holy One. So Paul has a lot to say, a lot of word of correction that to follow, but he starts by saying, this is who you are. So that's where we're going to start. This is who we are. Holy Ones, we're saints. Our identity matters. As always, if we're going to adjust behavior, it has to start with who you are. Can't just change your behavior and hope it changes who you are. God has changed who you are, and your behavior follows that. That's how the gospel works. 
There's no other world religion that works in that way. Only Christianity. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. God can make you new, and the new you behaves in this way. And there's, then there's this ongoing work that we'll talk about in just a moment. So I want to give you three, three points before we even read the passage. This is what, these are the three points. Three things we're learning from this passage about the believer. Benefits of gospel belief. In fact, benefits of gospel belief are a result of gospel belief. And they're this. We're given a clean record because we're not who we used to be. That's justification. We're given a clean record. The past is covered. Second benefit of gospel belief. We are enriched in gifts to exercise worship to God. So we exercise every gift that we have and we've been blessed with to bless God in return. We exercise these gifts to worship him, but also to the benefit of one another. We encourage one another. We strengthen one another. And also to the benefit of the world that they would come and know this God. So thing one, this is Dr. Seuss. Thing one, we're given a new record that's past, covered. This, in the present, we're enriched with every gift as one body. We're enriched with every gift to worship God, to encourage one another, and to reach the lost. And in the future, we're guaranteed all promises of God. They're all guaranteed. They're yours for sure. And you are secured in Him for eternity. So there's this past, present, and future aspect of, of this gospel belief that is true for every single believer. Everyone. You're covered. You're not who you used to be. You're enriched with gifts. And we're guaranteed security. Now moving forward, as we look at this passage this morning, we had to have the right context. So remember, the city of Corinth was at the heart of a very important trade route. And by nature, any, any city that thrives on trade is faced with a lot of issues, a lot of diversity, but a lot of issues come along with that. So Corinth had a reputation for being incredibly sexually immoral. There were religious diversities uh, among them that caused all kinds of disagreement and all kinds of corruption. And the church that Paul planted in Acts chapter 18 was very much struggling in this environment. They were, in a lot of ways, conforming to the world, floundering under all the, all the different, uh, different ways that the world say you're supposed to do life and all the different beliefs that came into this system were influencing them and causing various issues. And so this letter is to address those things that they wrote to Paul and said, hey, help us. And he's writing back with many practical things to address it, but also undergirding all of that with gospel truth. So the letter addresses the questions being asked, the questions concerning things like spiritual gifts, marriage, food offered to idols, uh, what, which way should we land on different religious beliefs, and the resurrection itself. Is it a real thing? Did Christ, was Christ actually resurrected? And Paul urges these Corinthian believers to unite in Christ above all else and give themselves to the work of the Lord. That's the message. Give yourself to the work of the Lord, all of you fully to the work of the Lord. And enduring in this calling which is for us as well, to give all of you. So if you're thinking there's parts of you, all of you, everything you are is devoted to the work of the Lord. And in order to endure in this to the end, we have to be saturated with gospel belief. Even as saints, you struggle. If there's anyone in here that would say, I don't struggle, you're lying. Let's stop the lies and just get to a place where we can see how the gospel works by admitting we struggle. 
We struggle to understand what's true. We struggle to depend on the Spirit in every aspect of life. We, we struggle to understand what's going to ensure that we make it to the end. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're going to make it to the end. Anxiety can be crippling. Life can be overwhelming. The future's mystery in itself can cause us to not want to go on anymore. So does the perseverance of the saints, does it lie in our hands? I think if we just know the principle, we'd say, no, it doesn't. Does this perseverance of our faith rest in our willpower? No. But is it on the knowledge of truth? Is it, is it just on whether or not we know right from wrong? Is it in how we apply our knowledge of truth? Is it wisdom? Like what, what makes it sure? Is it our ability to just live in light of the truth? I think maybe, but there's still something missing. Does doing right and avoiding wrong secure us? These are good questions. I'm glad you're asking. But this isn't just a question of whether or not there is security, because there certainly is. This is a question of how are we secure? And what keeps us trusting? We know what's true, what keeps us trusting what's true. And that's what we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just going to read through verses 4 through 9 this morning. This section is titled Thanksgiving. Paul often in his introductions includes a section of Thanksgiving. He doesn't always, but almost always. And to the Corinthians, they really need to hear it. So here we go. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the Word of God. This is truth. This is life-giving, even though it's an introduction to a letter. It's just a part of a greeting. This is the Word of God. This is life-giving. So we take time to evaluate how does this passage give us life today. Now, it's important that we, we feel like we're there with them. We need to understand what it means to them before we can even attempt to apply it to us. Otherwise, we'll no doubt get the wrong meaning. So can you imagine being in Corinth? Probably not, but try. Like different culture, different time in Corinth as a member of this church, torn apart by arrogance, torn apart by immaturity and arguments on every side of every issue. There's disagreements. There's confusions. There's confusing questions and there's questionable behavior everywhere. There's all kinds of judgment of people in the wrong and all kinds of arrogance of people in the quote-unquote right. And this is our church. Imagine, there. We're even struggling with things like fundamental pillars of our faith. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And we, we write all these questions down and we send it off to Paul and he writes in response, so we get word that Paul's responded to all this corruption, all these issues. So we gather in our little house church because this letter's about to be read to us. 
can kind of feel the emotions that might be in the room, maybe a little nervous. Here we go. And then he starts by saying, you're saints. You're sanctified. You belong to Jesus. You're holy. You're blameless. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. These are the first words we hear. It's kind of amazing, right? In this letter, Paul's going to no doubt address some issues in very harsh ways at times, but let's not miss how amazing it is that he's, his first thing is to display this grace. Identifying us with Christ though we're so identified currently with the culture and the world and caught up in all kinds of sin, we have to be caught off guard by this amazing grace, as we should be as believers, that God is gracious to us. We should be amazed every day that we are secure in Christ. We should be amazed that He loves us because we know who we are. I was jokingly telling Amelia on the way here, I was like, I bet you're more encouraged when I preach than when anyone else preaches but not because it's amazing, but because you know me. <laughs> You're like, this guy's preaching that? It has to be true. That we are secure in Christ, though we know who we are. So he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. This, the tense here is an expression of an ongoing action. He's always thankful for them. He constantly thinks of who they are in Christ, and he feels gratitude for that. And so we're, we're to understand from this point when he says, I give thanks to my God always, from this point to the end of verse 9, he's about to lay out why he's thankful. So though this sort of introductory thanksgiving is culturally expected in every letter that anyone would write, Paul often includes it, and then he intentionally ties it to something. Not just to the people, but to the God. So I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. So this expression of gratitude is rooted in what? The grace of God. I'm grateful for the grace of God. This is a means of offsetting the spiritual arrogance that they're feeling in Corinth. They're so proud of themselves. Look at these gifts we have. Look at our abilities. Look at all that we're doing. Look, we're even gracious to allow all kinds of immorality in our church because you know God's forgiving, so we'll be forgiving. They're boasting in these things like fools and Paul says, I'm grateful for the grace of God in your life because he's wanting them to see this isn't something you've developed in yourself. This isn't something you need to say I'm, I'm awesome about. God's grace has made you good. It, it's, it's like eating food and being thankful to the food, right? Man, thank you, pasta, for being delicious. That's some really good pasta last night. But if I were eating that pasta soup... We call it Italian gumbo. And I was just like, you are so awesome. You taste wonderful. Thank you for being so good. It's stupid. Like, you're, like why would you even entertain the thought? It's ridiculous. But even if I were to say, Kendrick, thank you. You have such wonderful culinary skills to develop this dish, complex flavors to create this amazing taste. You are awesome. I've said that to myself before. But that also is foolish. Because the truth is, God has been gracious to give me any sort of skill to develop any sort of flavor in a pot. 
He's the one that designed every single flavor that went into that pot. He's the one who gave me taste buds to taste those flavors and the the sense to derive pleasure from those flavors. So in every way, my body, my mind should worship the grace of God for food. This should be humbling to me. I've heard, I think it was Matt Chandler talk about Shaquille O'Neal in this way. This man is seven foot one. And when he raises his hand, he can jump like an inch and touch the rim. He should in no way boast about him dunking a basketball, right? That would be ridiculous. He had nothing to do with his super, super freakish height. It's ridiculous that people are that tall. It's so weird. But they didn't do anything, they had anything to do with that. God has been gracious in every way to give us all that we have, and we should worship him for how good he is. That's what Paul's trying to draw attention to by saying, I give thanks to God always, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So he offers this general way in which every believer has been enriched by knowing God and receiving the grace of God in all speech and in all knowledge. He's also setting himself up to, to talk about some different, different gifts down the road in this letter. But specifically, we as believers are gifted with all speech and all knowledge by God. And it was God who gave us these gifts and no man should ever boast in these things. So God has gifted us, the Crossing Church, with some excellent things. There's some very gifted people here, and I am very grateful that I'm not alone in this. Because I know that I'm lacking in my gifts, but I see the gifts in you. And rather than just celebrate you, I want to celebrate God. What is the condition of our heart when we pursue these gifts? What is the condition of our heart when we live on mission with these gifts? Who is getting credit for our goodness? Who are we making much of when we strive for excellence? Why are we doing anything that we're doing? All knowledge, when Paul says all knowledge, he's alluding not to a a theoretical or an academic knowledge, but a truth. We have all the truth we need by the grace of God. And how that truth should be applied to life by the grace of God. The church is equipped with everything we need to know truth and to apply truth. Human knowledge builds up. God's knowledge edifies and leads to peace and to harmony in Christian fellowship. So if we're lacking Christian fellowship, then we're not rightly utilizing these gifts of God to have all knowledge. So we, we have everything we need to be united. And when he says all speech, he's talking about our ability to communicate that truth in a way that would be edifying, in a way that would be encouraging. We have everything we need to communicate all the knowledge that God has graciously given us. And by grace, we have it. Individually and corporately, we've been enriched by Christ with all knowledge and all speech. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. This is the testimony about Christ is the gospel. And being confirmed among us is individual and then corporate belief in that gospel. So we have these gifts because we believe the gospel. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they have in Corinth, they have this intellectual background, their, their Greek culture in that way. And they have this social, the social standing because Rome is ruling the world and they have Roman culture in that way. 
And they have a strong foundation as a church because the Apostle Paul planted them. And they have leaders gifted to lead this church. And they have individuals, every individual member of this church gifted in, in whatever way to edify, encourage, and strengthen this church. They have all they need. So then the question remains, what went wrong? If it's true that they're lacking nothing, what's the problem here? It's, so, it's not just true they're lacking nothing. It's not hyperbole. He uses a, a double negative. And in, in Greek, double negative is a good thing. So it emphasizes. He says you're not lacking. He doesn't just say you have everything you need. He says you're not lacking anything. You have it all. In Christ, by the grace of God, you have it all. Now, if you're, if you're like me when you read that and you know that it applies to us, the church, today, then you find a little bit of relief here when we consider all the difficult things we face in the church and in the American church, all the division over so many denominational things or, or ethnic things or cultural or economic things. So many, so many ways we're divided. But we're not lacking anything. We can overcome this. We have all that we need by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This term gift here, in some, in some English translations, it says spiritual gifts because the word is charisma, which is spiritual, the spiritual gift. And in fact, it's been abused and misused in a lot of ways in the hyper-charismatic movement. They've, they've kind of hijacked this word charismatic when it, it's supposed to be a very good thing. This charisma is, has in common the Greek word grace, which is charis. So it's necessary that we see the connection because all gifts are grace given, but specifically spiritual gifts are by grace, by the grace of God. So these supernatural things, the things that are beyond human ability should not cause us to be prideful about anything we possess, but instead humbly receiving those things and, and humbly exercising those things by the grace of God. In fact, Paul's going to address this specifically in chapters 12 through 14 of this letter. Not any one person has every gift, But as a church, we have everything we need, lacking nothing, building up one another, growing in unity, and expanding the kingdom are possible because we have everything we need. And keep in mind, we're talking about the most corrupt and wayward church in all of the New Testament. So it certainly applies to us. Think of a baby. Some of you have had the pleasure of of already going to visit and hold Lucy Jean Beard. It's a precious, most wonderful addition to the Beard family. She really is awesome. She's, she's awesome. You should check her out. This precious girl, obviously, as awesome as she is, is lacking. Some would say she's lacking. Because she's, she needs people. She needs her mother. She needs her father. She's not going to survive without them. She, she has no independence on her own. She can't even really communicate what she needs. She just yells about it. Right? However, truth is, she's lacking nothing. Though she is very much dependent, she was born with everything she needs to grow into maturity. She has everything she needs. And family is a part of that everything she needs to grow into maturity. Likewise, we are born new in Christ as individuals 
with everything we need to grow into maturity, and we were planted as a church lacking nothing. However, we need discipline. So when we talk about lacking nothing, we're, we're talking about gifts. We're talking about what it's, what it's going to take to endure. But there's certainly a need still. There's a need for discipline. There's a need to exercise these gifts for the edification of the church and to the glory of God. So what good is something if you don't use it? What good is a gift if you don't exercise it? And that's why we're not going to just stop after verse 9 and call it a wrap. We're going to continue to work through this book of the Bible because we need the instruction that comes along with this beautiful expression of thanksgiving. And as a side note, it's much better to exercise your gift poorly with immaturity and learn and grow than to not use it at all. So how is it that Paul can be so positive considering the, considering the horrific state of this church? How is it Paul can be so positive while well, he's focusing on God's power and not human frailty? So though this beautiful baby is frail in many, in many ways, because of the grace of God in her life, she will no doubt grow and mature. But only by the grace of God. So this, this is present and, and this thanksgiving is given in this book of the Bible, so that we would praise God for his grace and his faithfulness. It's also communicating to us as recipients of that grace that we have reason to be encouraged. I wish that we would take time to more often show gratitude for the different gifts we see in one another. Gratitude for God's grace, certainly, but as a way of encouraging one another. I'm very grateful for the individuals in this church. I'm grateful for the people God has put in my life. God's put different people in my life at different times in my life because he knew exactly what I would need. And so ultimately, I'm grateful for his grace, but I'm grateful for those people and how God has gifted them. And and Paul's about to lay out some necessary correction, but first he reminds these believers of their identity in Christ and he celebrates the grace of God in their life. And in these next two verses, he points them to the reason for their hope. So verse 7, waiting for the return of Christ, that we would endure to the return of Christ. In verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless, blameless, innocent. That's you, Christian. That's you. All sin and guilt and shame for sin is removed because of this grace. We need to repeat it, I think, over and over again to ourselves. We are guiltless. You are blameless. You are holy. That's who you are. Whatever you're thinking about yourself, whatever flaw you see in yourself, whatever shame you're carrying with you, you're guiltless. Any obligation you have, you feel to to pay back God for His grace, that's covered as well. Set it aside. There's nothing for you to do that you could ever do to pay Him back for this grace. There's no shame you should be carrying. If you feel you are laden with guilt and shame because you're a sinner and you're anxiously working to to pay that back somehow, then you're missing it. You're missing the the magnitude of God's grace, both quantitatively and qualitatively. You're missing the magnitude of His grace. It overwhelms everything that you would try and carry. It, it, It removes every chain you would try to put back on yourself. It should be, it should free you to live in light of the truth. 
You've done nothing to earn it, and you can do nothing to ruin it. God is gracious, and our right response, along with Paul, is gratitude. He will sustain you till the end, guiltless. Now, our primary task considering these gifts is to act faithfully in obedience. And that's certainly true, even though I just said you could do nothing to pay him back. Your primary response is to act faithfully in obedience. So when it comes to obedience, what should our, our motivation be then? Well, I believe it should be not gratitude, because that no doubt leads to this obligation to pay him back. So gratitude should be your response, but not your motivation to obey. Rather, our motivation is found in God, and it's found by His grace. It's found in who He is. Your motivation is this God-giving desire for something more. Every human being feels it. We desire something more. We want to be satisfied. So your motivation for obedience is the knowledge that all that satisfaction is going to be found in God. All that you desire is only going to be found by pursuing Him. It's this pursuit of joy in Christ. Why obey so that you can be satisfied? Yes. As a result of God being glorified. So if the command is live all your life, do everything you do, whether you eat or you drink, do everything to the glory of God. If that's the command, the reason you obey is for joy. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you, if you feel weird about that, you're finding joy in God and it glorifies Him. You're finding satisfaction in Christ and He is made much of. We're boasting in Jesus. We're freed from anxiety because of Jesus. And the world sees that and they know this God is everything you say He is. If all of your life is, is about finding satisfaction in Christ, then naturally you're going to obey. Naturally, you're going to, to want other people to love him as well. If you really believe Jesus is more satisfying, if he's better than your sin, then you're going to want that for everybody else. And every command Scripture would have to give you would be obeyed if we lived our life in perfect belief. Only we don't, we struggle. And so though we know this to be true, we no doubt will be unfaithful. And it would be foolish to ever claim any sense of arrival, any sense of maturity to full maturity until Christ returns. So that's why we need this, this, what Paul has just said, this understanding that God is going to sustain us until the day of our Lord. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1, 6. Verse 9. How do we know all this to be true? It's not any dependent on our ability, but on the power of God, because God is faithful. By whom we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the continuing emphasis on God's election of the Corinthians and of all believers in, in chapter 1. Verse 2, he said, you are called. Verse 9 here, he says, you're called. Verse 24 and 26 of the same chapter, he says, you're called. And a billion other places, that's an exaggeration, a, a lot of other places, he says, you were called, I have called you. How do you know you're going to be sustained because I've called you? And whoever I've called, I've justified. And whoever I've justified will be glorified. It's a promise of God. The Bible has two seemingly paradoxical truths as far as it concerns a believer's relationship with God. And how this covenantal nature that we've talked a lot about 
It, it requires 100% from both parties. So God is 100% all in on this. He has proven it again and again. Namely, in bodily resurrected after giving his life for us. He's all in. And we are required 100%. So this very free gift requires all of you. That's why I say it's somewhat paradoxical. Now, this is, this is our perseverance. This all of you that's required is your perseverance. You have to make it to the end. So if all of you is required, but it's totally free, how do we know we're going to make it? Because we know we're not faithful. All over the place, we see God's promise in this. And Jesus says it in John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 28, Jesus also says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand or out of my hand. And in Romans 8, 38 and 39, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, no powers nor heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation, so anything in all creation, that includes us, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how we know, according to Scripture, our salvation is secure. If, you're, if you truly believe, if you're actually called, if you have responded with belief, it's secure. Nothing in all creation can ruin that. Not even you. Both security and perseverance are necessary biblical aspects of this covenant. However, both of them come by grace. Both of them are in the hands of the Lord. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Both to, will, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So though this command to work out your salvation, though the perseverance is all on you, though you have to give 100% of you, it's God who does this work. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So though, all of you is required. It's only by grace. So when we talk about faith, scripture, when Scripture talks about faith, it denotes this sure, trustworthy, dependable thing. Sure, trustworthy, dependable are not adjectives that describe fallen man. Sure, trustworthy, dependable are not even adjectives that, that qualify a, a redeemed fallen man. Even in Christ, we are still struggling. We're not sure. We're not trustworthy. We're not dependable. So, it only leads us to the one who is. There's only one. What sustains us? What keeps us faithful? Not mankind's trustworthiness. Not our faithfulness, our obedience, our dependability. Not our gifts, not our ability, not anything we could ever bring to the table. What keeps us secure is God alone, His faithfulness alone. If we're going to persevere, we're totally dependent on a faithful God. The biblical focus has always been on His faithfulness. Not Israel wandering around in the, 
in the wilderness can't even find themselves, much less security. Not any prophet that God sent along. Not any pastor that's ever lived. Not any leader, not anyone you've ever looked up to, and certainly not yourself. But you have to depend on the faithfulness of God. Church has to depend on the faithfulness of God. It's all about Christ. And it's certainly clear in this introduction that it's all about Christ. Because in 10 verses, Paul references Jesus 11 times. It's all about Jesus. What's left for us but to do what Paul has done here and thank God for His grace. And in doing so, we grow more and more aware of our dependence on that grace because it's grace that saves. And, and too often, I think we, we fall into the trap that, okay, where does faith come from? And we have these theological debates on where does faith come from? Do I create it in my choosing? Or does God gift it in His choosing? I mean, we get really divided over these issues. The Southern Baptist Convention right now is going to focus a lot on that, unfortunately, because of who has been up for who's going to be our next president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and there's these divisions over theology, and I hate it. I, I'm like almost ashamed of being Southern Baptist because of that. It's ridiculous that we find division in something so clearly that's supposed to unite us. But truth is, salvation isn't even really about faith as much as it is about grace. How can we be arrogant about grace? How can we claim knowledge when knowledge is a gift of grace? How can we argue with other believers over what's true when truth is a gift of grace? It's ridiculous. Rather than boasting in our gifts or our knowledge or what insight we might have to how salvation works, how about we... Be grateful that God has been gracious to save us. The most reassuring truth to keep in mind when, faith, when faced with humans' unfaithfulness, humanity's unfaithfulness, is the absolute faithfulness of our God. Grace saves us. We're not saved by faith, we're saved by grace, through faith but by grace. All right. Sorry. It's an unexpected rant. It's from God. <laughs> the Christian life is given hope in eternal life from God who never lies, who's made a lot of promises and never lies. Christians live in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began that we would have life secure in Him. That's Titus 1, 2. Now, as we are so often feeling defeated and overwhelmed, as sin affects us in ways that we believe all kinds of lies, like we can't move forward, we are offered this steady assurance that God is faithful. And our response should be gratitude. We are secure not because God overlooks our sin and says it's not that big a deal. We'll just keep moving forward. God doesn't just say it's okay that you don't believe. We'll, we'll keep moving forward. Rather, He gives us assurance because He keeps us believing. 
It's not that he overlooks our unbelief. He returns us by his grace to believing. And he keeps us believing. So we know what is expected of us, but we must rightly see how we're going to get there. We know all the commands. We know what the church is supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing. We know what eternity kind of, we know what eternity looks like, but how are we going to get there? It's by the grace of God and his faithfulness. If we look to ourselves, we'll fail. If we look to our gifts, our stuff, our knowledge, our skills, we'll fail. But having been called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we find everything we need by the grace of God. We get, we get everything we need. In Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, keep us. Hold us in your arms. Help us to see that you are king always and you will be king always. Help us to see that only grace saves received through faith so that we don't focus on how much faith we have but the object of that faith that we would see Christ standing firm in the middle, sure of everything He's accomplished, that we could be sure of everything You've promised. Lord, I pray for us as individuals that we would wrestle with this, this security of our salvation. We'd question where our faith is placed and we'd question how we know we're secure and we'd find ourselves united corporately with uh, one voice crying out praise to a king who is faithful, to a father who loves us, to a God who has been gracious beyond what we can even see right now, aware of the gifts that we have here. Let us be grateful. Let us express that gratitude for the people you've placed to be a member of the Crossing Church, to share in this mission, to be one body. Let us be grateful to the grace of God for every way you've gifted us, with all speech and all knowledge, to know what is true, to proclaim what is true, to live in light of what is true, to have lives totally saturated by gospel truth that a watching world would see our God is faithful. And they would know you're faithful because they see the way that we believe you're faithful and the ways that we love one another in light of your faith and your grace. God, be glorified in all of this as we praise you, as we partake in communion, as we give of time and energy and, and money to the kingdom, let it all be done with humble hearts, grateful for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.